Hello, this is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. You're listening to Here We Stand. It's February 25th. This is the voice of the Republic of Canada and the Resistance. Well, it was 13 years ago tomorrow that my friend William Coombs was murdered by arsenic poisoning in the Catholic St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. He was killed because he began speaking publicly about what he saw as a young boy at the Kamloops Indian Residential School death camp, the abduction and disappearance of 10 other Native children by Queen Elizabeth on October 10, 1964. But William wasn't just another inconvenient witness who became just another dead Indian. His murder set off a chain of events that is now forcing King Charles off his imaginary throne and is reviving once again Canada's biggest and most concealed crime, the church and state slaughter of over 60,000 children. Because as we've proven under the law in our West Coast Common Law Court of Justice last fall, it was Charles Windsor who issued the kill order against William Coombs, and as it turns out, against other Native activists in Saskatchewan. That story continues to surface and is one of the main reasons Charles is considering abdicating very soon. Today on Harry Stand, we're going to honor William Coombs and other fallen heroes as we let our remembrance of them point our way forward and assist our sovereign republic movement to displace and replace a genocidal crown and corporate system. Well, one indication of how that system is teetering and toppling is how quickly crown insiders are deserting their sinking ship and ratting out Charles and others. Charles' own security advisor, Major Johnny Thompson, testified secretly to our court how he issued William's kill order and how the RCMP Black Ops Specialist Inspector Peter Montague in Vancouver executed that murder. Soon after our court's verdict was released last November 20th, Charles began talking about abdicating. History, in other words, is repeating itself. For exactly such a toppling of a monarch happened in February 2013, when our common law court of justice in Brussels forced Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger from his office, using the evidence from our trial. And it was all started and made possible by survivors of genocide like William Coombs, poor and homeless people with the courage to not simply speak the truth, but take action against the killers in robes. You can see the recent court case and all of that background at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates for November 20th, 2023. Well, this coming week we'll be releasing as well a mini documentary about how we achieved those miracles, featuring exclusive, never-before-seen footage of the historic church occupation we conducted in March 2008 in Vancouver that forced the Canadian government and churches to start admitting their crime. You can watch it on our website this coming week, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. Its release is part of the growing banishment and reclamation campaign by our republic and nine indigenous nations that's right now seizing and reclaiming the wealth and properties of the Roman Catholic, the Anglican, and the United Churches of Canada. Because on that historic Sunday in 2008, Squamish Chief Capilano first legally evicted those murderous churches from his territory, which encompass all of Vancouver, and he authorized me as his legal agent to enter and seize all 77 of those churches in the city. With that legal warrant, it's one of the reasons that the police never interfered with our church occupations and protests. And as a result, the truth began collapsing the blood-soaked regime called Canada, which is now a wholly-owned subsidiary of China. Well, the criminals have done their best to erase the memory of those victories from public memory, but the truth endures as long as we remember it and carry on the struggle. And across Canada, we'll be doing that under the sovereign authority of the Republic of Canada. We're going to be doing that again starting April 15th, which is the 20th anniversary of the first Aboriginal Holocaust Memorial Day that started the first wave of church occupations in Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Toronto. But over the long years in this battle, we've evolved beyond mere truth-telling and mere protest. We are disestablishing their genocidal system at its roots. And that takes us as a determined and unrelenting minority of veterans who have to lead others. It takes us into a new area where we learn to be armed with our own history and with clear minds, pure hearts, and strong wills to fight and never give up. Once we become like that, once we evolve into those kind of fighters, we gain a sharper inner vision and we see that the end is approaching for everything we knew. There is less and less to hang on to. 
There is a judgment on all of us and the criminal system we've all fed, a blowback and a payback according to the great law of return. Any part of our lives still connected to the slaughter we call Canada or civilization will not survive what is coming, nor should it survive. The COVID tyranny has been just a pale foreshadowing of an extermination, a global omnicide that is happening as we speak, and humanity will likely not survive it. But that's all the more reason to separate ourselves now from this world's criminal madness and stand only within the authority of a new covenant with Creator's natural law. A personal, political, and spiritual covenant, a declaration of independence from the satanic world order. That has been the underlying message of our movement for years now and is manifested within a Republic of Canada and its allies among a handful of genuinely indigenous people. There'll be a lot more about that in the future. But now let's take inspiration and purpose from this remembrance of some of our fallen but risen brothers and sisters, especially remembering that miraculous day on Sunday, March 16, 2008, when the least of us occupied churches in Vancouver and turned the tables on Goliath and his minions. For on that day we put flesh on Jesus' words, for God has raised up the poor and toppled the mighty from their thrones. This is Kevin Ennett. Eagle Strong Voice, I thank you. On that bright day, we filled Holy Rosary Cathedral during its service, and we helped Harriet seize the pulpit and reclaim the church building for her people as the priests ran out the back door. And I saw another miracle that day when William strode among the pew sitters without fear as the 50 of us counted coup on the oldest crime in history. William died. Twelve years ago today, February 26th, he was killed like Harriet by lethal injection in St. Paul's Catholic Hospital in Vancouver. But a firing squad or a crucifixion has never ended anything. Their spirit lives on and takes flesh in us if our minds are armed and our hearts are willing. Just look at their example. Harriet Nahani was an eyewitness as a child to the murder of little Maisie Shaw in the United Church Alberni Residential School, as they call it, December 24th, 1946, murdered by Alfred Caldwell, the principal there. And she spoke about it at a protest I held after my firing for bringing out that, the truth of those crimes. December 18th, 1995, she made the headlines, first time in Canada describing the murder of a child in a residential school. She and I held the first protest at the downtown churches a few weeks later in early 1996. She was there when I was being publicly defrocked in a public show trial, she was picketing that facility with a sign that said, churches are evil and the work of the devil. And she held the first forum with us, February 1998, the first Iram tribunal, the Human Rights Tribunal into the residential schools, June 12th to 14th, 1998. And she did all of our actions for the next few years until she was murdered, February 24th, 2007, one week after we had begun our first church occupations. She was murdered by Judge Brenda Brown of the B.C. Supreme Court after Harriet had been arrested for protesting the expansion of the highway into her traditional Squamish territories. Judge Brenda Brown put her in Surrey Remand Prison where she got pneumonia and died of, quote, cancer four weeks later at St. Paul's Hospital, the same killing center where William died. Well, the judge, Brenda Brown, was, guess what, head of the Indian Residential School cover-up program called the Settlements. She was appointed by the first judge to begin that cover-up, Donald Brenner. So the very people covering up the crime ordered Harriet's death by crown order. Well, William died in a similar way. As you know, he was the eyewitness to the abduction of children by Queen Elizabeth, October 10, 1964, and other killings he witnessed at the Kamloops and Mission death camps. He went public. He was to testify. He, too, was murdered at St. Paul's Hospital 12 years ago today under the direction of Dr. Elliot Weiss. According to Chloe Kirker, his nurse, who diagnosed all the symptoms of arsenic poisoning that day. William's name and what he witnessed is now known all over the world. It's kind of like the biblical prophecy says, the least of the people has toppled the mighty for their thrones. But as you know, describing all of this doesn't really bring understanding. You have to have been there and experienced it to know what it was, the miracle that it was. Thomas Jefferson said the real history of the American Revolution can never be written. And so with our revolution. But its spirit lives on in our personal memories of the loved and the lost and those who have risen from the dead. 
And so today on the show, we're going to be learning more about some of those great souls. I'm going to do that by reading some excerpts from my book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four, personal recollection of four of these brothers, all survivors of the death camps, all of them taking part in our church occupations, and all of them paying the ultimate price for it. William Coombs, Harry Wilson, Bingo Dawson, and Ricky Lavalle. You can see this book at our site, murderbydecree.com, along with all of my other books. And at the break, we're going to, I'm going to take a break at the halfway point, and we're going to hear some of the voices, their actual voices, of the Canadian genocide. But let me begin. Harry Wilson was the first of the four that I met, and we met in a former classroom cluttered with chairs and remorse. He was just one of 20 sad brown faces that took no notice of me. Harry was a small man, crouching in the seat like one being ground into pulp. He didn't speak when invited to by the clean-faced guy who pretended to run the meeting. Harry was shy and withdrawn, less by nature than by circumstance. His tongue didn't work well, and soon I learned why and what had been done to it by a sewing needle. Harry didn't tell me at first about the dead girl he had discovered at the Alberni Residential School. It took weeks before he first began to t talk about it. He worked back to the worst memories, like any of us do. The dead girl had been from far away. She was a Haida, without any friends or family close by. The kind of children Edward Peake and the other Alberni staff members loved to target. Harry couldn't remember her name, just the way she didn't move when he nudged her body. Her blood was everywhere. She was lying outside the dormitories on the Alberni Residential School playground asphalt the morning Harry found her. I never understood why Harry kept disclosing so much to me after I told him I used to be a United Church minister. It had been one of my colleagues who had put Harry's tongue in a vice and shoved a sewing needle through it for good measure after he tried speaking about the dead girl. I never met the clergyman torturer in question, but I had been friends with another minister named Foster Freed who knew the man well and spoke, spoke glowingly of his sermons. Harry's first memory had been the actually had been the small holding cell that had become his home the year he turned five. Once a prison, and then a mental asylum, the Brandon Lake Reformatory near Nanaimo was completely off the radar when it consumed Harry and his other brothers. Harry thought he heard at least one of them die in there, despite the heavy padding in their cells. So many screams echoed day and night in that place, but a boy knows his own brother's voice. I think it was Kenny, Harry said. He was calling me, then he screamed a lot. That was it. I don't know what happened to the others. Never any of them did I see again. Harry's life went blank for a long time after Brandon Lake, holding not even the memory of the military helicopter ride in a stretcher over Mount Aerosmith to the Alberni Indian Residential School. That was in 1964, and Harry was nine years old by then, according to the records I eventually discovered. You know, the crevices of any city mingle with worse than we can imagine, and for too long, it has found its way to me. It surges over and leaves me standing, but its tide washes those like Harry Wilson into oblivion, while I remain as impossibly erect as a battered coastal lighthouse. I was with him in his last years, and yet all of, for all our time together, I could not throw him a lifeline, for nothing could have helped him. He said what he could while he could, and he introduced me to the others. Bingo Dawson was next. I had seen him before, perched in his own regal state at the northeast corner of Maine and Hastings Street, from where he never seemed to budge. He knew everyone on both sides of the invisible line, cop and vagrant, junkie and dealer. Never hurried, always listening and watching. Bingo had noticed me, too. When Harry and I walked past him one morning on our way to the Ovaltine restaurant, Harry nodded a hello to him, and Bingo used the moment to break the ice. He actually stood up and extended his hand to me. I've been wanting to meet you, he coughed, flicking a dube into the gutter. You're that minister. His real name was Johnny Dawson, and like Harry, who was some kind of distant cousin, he was a mixture of northern Nishka and coastal Heshquet. He was also a survivor of an Anglican torture center called the St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay, from where he had escaped when he was barely 12. That explained some of his hard ballsiness. He bore none of Harry's crushed demeanor. Everybody down here has got the same story, Bingo said to me as we ate. 
They all got seriously fucked over, and now they're hiding out, pretending it's going to go away or work out. Pure bullshit. Meanwhile, everybody's screwing everybody else. Bingo's talk seemed to make Harry nervous. The smaller guy kept glancing furtively towards the door as if expecting someone to crash through at any moment. Finally, he got up and fled to the bathroom. Poor Harry, scared of his own shadow, remarked Bingo. Well, you can't blame him, I muttered. Bingo squinted at me, and then he lifted his arm and pulled up his sleeve. A long, jagged scar stretched from elbow to wrist. "You, You don't want to know about this, he said. It's why I got the hell out of there. Harry could have got out, but he stayed. Maybe it's because that fucking doctor took his manhood away from him. But we all make our choice in the end, man. Everybody makes a choice. I used to search for excuses for other people as if my life depended on it. I stopped doing that the more survivors I met. Bingo helped midwife to change inside me because he wanted me to wake up. So you're him, he said again, as I wondered what Harry was doing in the can for so long. I nodded, and he looked at me carefully. He said, you must have really pissed off those big shots. Is that why you're down here? I lost my job on my face, I replied. I want to know why. It ain't rocket science, man, Bingo laughed. You were asking the wrong questions and letting in the wrong dudes on Sundays, is what I heard. I never heard a minister do that before, he said. Well, I named their crime. Now I want the proof of it. Bingo squinted at me again. He kept staring at me as Harry returned. Proof's not the problem, Bingo finally said. Things took time with my new acquaintance, for Bingo had the long view. But by the next week, he was pointing certain people my way. And one of them was William Coombs, number three. Middle-aged but ancient, crumbling before my eyes, Billy Coombs was the epitome of a rescue survivor and much more. He had already done prison time for murdering a guy. He was short but powerfully built, which is no doubt how he survived the horrific tortures I began to learn about. He wasn't an easy man to chat with. He didn't know anything of small talk. When Bingo first waved him over to us on the street one day and tried an introduction, Billy just stared at me, his jagged upper lip pulled back like he was snarling. After a moment, he just wandered off. I raised my eyebrow at Bingo, who just shook his head. Give it time. You wanted proof, didn't you? We tried again the next day. It was Welfare Wednesday. The checks were out and the opiates flowed fast and freely. A lot of the Hastings Street regulars were passed out or overdosed in an alley or some shitty hotel room. But Bingo seemed apart from it all, as usual. He led me to the dugout drop-in on Powell Street, where, lo and behold, sat Billy Coombs, staring at nothing. The guy was more approachable than before, maybe because an empty bottle of Johnny Walker lay at his feet. I thought they didn't allow that in here, I said to him. My words made Billy chuckle, who raised his gaze at Bingo as if to say, who the hell is this jerk? I noticed a pile of papers filled with random scrawls in front of him. When he saw me staring at them, Billy grabbed the papers and shoved them inside his ripped shirt. Sorry, I said to him. You people are always saying that, Billy mumbled. Then he looked at me again and slowly withdrew one of the pages. Catholic priests have always had a particular free hand when it comes to Indians, especially the children. The usual rubber stamp protocol of monthly health inspections by government Indian agents was unknown in the Catholic residential schools, like the ones in Mission and Kamloops, that flayed William from age three onwards and murdered his brother Ernie and countless other little ones. The priests and the nuns could do whatever they wanted to any child, any time, any way. But who would be drawn to work in such a free-fire killing zone? And how could anyone stay? Brother Murphy, whispered Billy slowly as he stared at the page. He died a few years ago. Bastard is buried right next to the mission school. He's got a real nice headstone. He looked at me and slowly handed me some of the papers. Keep it, Billy pronounced. I thanked him and I folded it into my pocket. The final one of the four was Ricky Lavalley. I wouldn't have thought it possible for anyone to take a two-string guitar seriously, but Ricky did. He composed his own songs off the cuff as he shuffled his enormous bulk around the neighborhood, hitting up anyone dressed half-decently for a bowl of clam chowder soup, which is all he ever asked for. I obliged him one day, and after slurping the mess down in seconds, he took me... He, sorry, he took to me like I was his own flesh and blood, and soon he told me about how his little brother 
had been beaten to death in front of him at the United Church Res School in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. From what I could discover, Ricky had no relatives left alive, which is not too unusual for a native person in Canada. And being a Plains Cree, the West Coast was foreign territory for him. Well, I said to Bingo later, I know he's Cree because I've seen his band card from Long Plains Reserve, but I don't know much more about him. Jesus, Kev, sighed Bingo in response. I've known him for 20 years and I still don't know who the hell he is. His words could have been a description of every survivor I was meeting. Their opaqueness had become my world. Their faces returned to me at the unlikeliest moments. One night, years after they were all dead, Ricky's shy smile loomed suddenly before me again from the day that he and I and Bingo and the others marched down Georgia Street in downtown rush hour traffic with our banner held aloft saying, all the children need a proper burial. Rob Morgan, who was a pissed-off Nishka survivor, thought it was bullshit to stick to the sidewalks when we had such a truth to tell. So as the cars swerved around us and obscenities rained down on our little protest, Ricky turned to me with his sad eyes and said hesitantly, How are we doing, Kev? Fucking awesome, Rick, I yelled back, my elation igniting him like a light flicking on in a morgue. Strangely, not a single cop appeared that day to confront us as we blocked the downtown traffic and shouted for justice for missing children. But when we returned to the neighborhood later, five of the cops were waiting for us. The biggest cop was a lumbering obesity sporting sergeant chevrons on his sleeve. He sounded over to us and shouted in the face of Rob, who had led our march, You try that stunt again and next time your ass is mine. Bingo stepped forward that instant, uncharacteristically angry. He told the cop to back off, that we hadn't done anything wrong, that the real criminals were the ones running the churches. The sergeant grinned as he turned on Bingo, recognizing him as a local street corner fixture and as somebody who had taken part in his share of our church occupations. And without lowering his voice, the cop yelled at Bingo, Just keep it up, asshole. Fuckers like you go missing. At the time, I didn't want to think that Bingo and Ricky and the rest of us were marked men. I had lost everyone in my life by then, and without knowing it, the four of them would gain a tighter claim to my heart than the family I had lost, in the manner of those who fight for their lives along each side, alongside each other in a desperate battle. But the big cop's eyes showed how much he wanted all of us dead. It was just a matter of time. The arrangement is always made informally, through looks that require no words or a gesture that permits and absolves everything at once. The signal is given and people die. I once met a contract killer during my brief stint as a prison chaplain. He told me how easily it's done, especially in a place like Canada. The killer named Peter Montague, who was watching us by then as a specialist. As an RCMP special operative, his services are called upon by faceless men only when all their other options are gone. Preferring to wipe out the target's public name rather than make a martyr of them, Peter nevertheless uses last resort measures when a public example has to be made. He'd been a special ops commando before he joined the Mounties, and so he knows the art of silent killing. And so I felt his eyes on us without ever seeing him. Because a year before he struck at us, Montague's people had kept our little group under surveillance. Our name in the names of dead children on the steps of local churches didn't seem to bother Peter Montague, even when an irate Gary Patterson, the normally smug minister of St. Andrew's Wesley United Church, demanded to Montague that he do something about the Indians with placards who kept invading his Sunday services. All of that changed when we began speaking about the missing Aboriginal women years before it became a fashionable media topic. The threats began. Bingo said to me one morning, somebody just told me I'm not going to live to see the new year. Who said that, I asked. How do I know? He didn't hang around for long. Bingo had just been a guest on my Vancouver co-op radio program that was ended the same year that he was. He had spoken at length about the local Mounties who had last been seen driving away with Aboriginal women who had vanished forever. At one point on the air, Bingo said, I ain't going to say her name, but my friend was held down a knife point by Constable Michelson, who raped her and cut her up. He said she was part of his stable now, and if she told anybody, she'd go missing, just like all the other girls he'd killed. I was gobsmacked. You don't mean RCMP Constable Bruce Michelson, the guy who's on the missing women's task force? That's him, all right. 
A deep look had passed between us at that moment in the co-op radio studio as my technical operator stared through the glass at us with a petrified expression of horror. But now Bingo and I shared the same penetrating gaze as if we were not quite ready to say the obvious of what had to happen next. And we'll take a break in about five, um, yeah, a few minutes. Police sergeant who'd warned Bingo that people like him go missing answered to Peter Montague. He was, in fact, one of three such operatives who would land the blows to Bingo's head and chest that killed him. The long-delayed death certificate for Vancouver's cop-friendly coroner eventually claimed that Bingo had died of alcohol poisoning, but the toxicology report contradictorily showed that there was no alcohol or drugs in Bingo's bloodstream at the time of his death. But, of course, the official lies never need to be coordinated, especially when involving people who aren't white, because nobody cares enough to notice or ask. Although we never really expect death, Bingo's murder hit me worse than I expected, and not only because of the sergeant's murderous threat made to him just a week before he died. Bingo was an immovable rock in our neighborhood and in our movement, and when he fell, so did some of my own best hopes. I think we're going to uh, take a break there. And uh, Doug, if you don't mind, uh, let's play this clip now, which is Voices of the Canadian Genocide. These are people who like Bingo and the others, gave testimony at the, our various forums. And there are pauses in the recording. It's about eight minutes long. There's pauses in it because it's part of a video that was used at the International Common Law Court of Justice as video testimony. So after this tape of voices, we'll be back. Irene Favor, I'm 75. I went to a residence and school in Muskogon in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. As a young girl, she was seven years old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They, they took the baby, wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. And you could smell the, the, you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. So after my brother got better, he needed to go back to the mush hole. And we didn't go back for that next year. But it was some time after that. During the time that um, that we were out of school for the summer, that he had, and we were going to go back, and he told, he said, you know what happened to all of those kids that were there at the mush hole? He said, do you remember that? And I said, yeah. I said, our, our dorm was just full of girls. And he said, yeah, so was ours full of boys. And he said, um, did you... Uh, do you, remember, do you know what happened to them? And I said, no. And he said, they called in the army and they, and they took them to the army base and they, and they shot them. They stood them all along this big hole and they shot them. And was, as, as um, when the bullets hit them, they fell into the, into the uh, hole. And... Um, and he said, when they were all done, he said, those that, that had, hadn't fallen into the hole, uh, some of them were still alive. He said, some of them were still alive in the hole. And he said, they came along. And, I want to say a bulldozer. That what comes to my mind, but I'm not really sure that my brother had said a bulldozer. They came along with a big machine anyway, and they... And they shoved them all in that big hole and they covered it up. And um, and he says, um, that's what happened to them. And I must have been about eight, I guess, or seven or eight, somewhere through there. Let's see, that must have been 43 or 44. Uh, here we are, second day of the dig, near the mush hole. And this is an area about... 100 yards from the school, 
where we found consistent bone samples. And these regular types of buttons, probably off of, well, clothing, obviously. But the interesting thing is here and at the Glebe site, they're of the same style as if they're off a standard uniform or something. Could be a child's button off a school mm. uniform. Scary. Finding those little skulls in there. What were those little skulls? Where did they come from? Could you describe what they look like? Tiny little ones. Two little skulls. Tiny baby ones. And they're in here. I feel that fear we had running upstairs to that door. And uh, I spent five years in the Canadian government calls the residential schools, but really these were prisoner of war camps. I was one in the one called the Mohawk uh, Institute. Starved us, beat us, froze us, and uh, it, it was horrific. There was no controls in the place. Kids were always getting beat up or being put through various torture uh, uh, rituals. A lot of the kids were tortured in there. They were made to hang off uh, hot pipes until uh, they couldn't hold on anymore and they just fell to the floor from the roof. And uh, they were beaten. Whenever someone felt like it, uh, made to hold on to electric fences. They were and the ministry found out I was pregnant and they told me to have an abortion and after I have the abortion to have a tubal ligation so I won't have any more children. They said if I didn't, didn't um, have a tubal ligation then I would never see my daughter Patricia again. Furnace going burning 24-7, which was totally out of bounds, and, uh, and me and a friend uh, witnessed uh, two of uh, the uh, sisters or brothers uh, taking uh, look like little bodies under uh, white uh, wrappings or white cloth and uh, putting them into the uh, uh, into the uh, furnace. And the queen came visited visit. For about three days, uh, two, three days, I don't know how long it was, I think it was about three days actually, and a lot of children went missing there. Many children uh, that, that weren't cooperative, um, like myself, uh, wasn't cooperative, and they were put into uh, the, uh, with the children who were sick with, with uh, at the, in of the uh, dormitory, they kept the sickies there, the ones who were sick with tuberculosis, and um, they they put me and my brother Ernie in with with the ones who were sick because uh, because we wouldn't comply. In the same room with people who had TB. Um, they didn't separate but us. Then we were forced to play with them. The nuns made us play with those kids. We didn't want to get sick either, but they. They were forcing us to play with those kids. And also, they made some of them sleep with the other kids. I would have loved to have seen the, uh, the perpetrators uh, severely punished for all of this. And I would the, the greatest thing I'd, I would want to see is the Church of England get barred from practicing in Canada. It's just insane, like you don't murder children and get away with it. And I work every day to protect children, and it just really bothers me that, that so many of our children have been killed. And, and nothing's ever been done about it. Like, you read about it, and, and there's information on it all over the place, but nothing's ever been done about it. So why should these people, the churches and the government and Indian Affairs, were all in on this as well, why should they get away with killing our children? It's just not right. And something needs to be done about it. Voices of the crime, the blood on our hands. Now you know why the campaign continues. Now you know why some of us have never stopped. 
burnt babies in ovens, baby skulls found in ovens. You heard William Coombs' voice there talking about how his brother Ernie and he were put in among children dying with TB, a common method of spreading the disease, the germ warfare used over nearly a century in these places. So, you know, what amazes me is not only that it happened and they got away with it, but that we'll call a protest or an action at a church and you can count on the number of ha- one hand, the number of people who show up. So, you tell me why people don't consider this a crime, or if you do, why you're not moved to act on it. That's why I wrote this book, to somehow try to stir the conscience of people in the hearts, to say, guess why we have COVID tyranny now? Because we didn't stop this crime against our brothers and sisters who are brown. So carrying on in the, the book, we just described the murder of Bingo Dawson. Ricky Lavalle knew who had killed Bingo Dawson. He had witnessed his savage beating by three Vancouver cops early one morning in an alley not far from Bingo's four-corner roost. But Ricky kept what he knew to himself at first. Maybe he thought that nobody would believe him. More likely, he was just scared. The truth slipped out of him a month after Bingo's funeral in the depths of winter. Literal night and fog swept around a group of us who were taking coffee and soup out to the die-hard homeless guys who refused to camp out in the First United Church shelter where they might be robbed or beaten. Ricky kept hanging around me, even as I chatted to an old guy buried in blankets, so I knew he had something on his mind. Finally, I said, let's go get some soup, Rick. We sat in silence after he had finished his clam chowder. Guys were huddled out in the cold, huddled out of the cold in the booths near the front of the restaurant, hoping their waitress wouldn't notice them. Rick stared out the window and didn't seem to hear me when I spoke. What, he finally said. I said, what's bothering you? His eyes filmed over and he shook his head with a look of infinite misery. He stayed quiet for a minute and then he whispered, I saw them work over Johnny Bingo. They left him lying there in the alley. He wasn't moving or nothing. He paused and then said, I should have gone and helped him. Rick named all three of the cops who had beaten Bingo to death. They were well-known local thugs, including the sergeant who'd threatened Bingo. Rick refused to go public with what he'd seen, but I did. Before it was shut down, I operated a public radio program at Vancouver Co-op Radio called Hidden from History. Run out of a building in the heart of Skid Row, its hour every week was like a campfire to which a growing stream of refugees stumbled from under their own particular night and fog. More of these witnesses began speaking on the air, and the world began to learn of something of the past and present atrocities. And on Monday, February 8, 2010... Our listeners heard from my lips the names and deeds of the three policemen who had killed Johnny Bingo Dawson. An unnatural pause followed my words, which hung in the ether like a sword. Ricky hid out for several weeks, and Billy and Harry avoided me for a time, perhaps waiting to see what would happen and what would befall me. As for the thing that struck at Bingo through the three cops, it may have been too surprised by our broadcast to do anything but plan how to stop any more such exposure, Our audacity caught even our biggest adversaries off guard on more than one occasion. Regardless, the world swallowed down my words and Bingo's murder without a hiccup, and even our own people soon forgot about it. Everything we tried to do was absorbed and dissipated so routinely that to even imagine anything changing seemed absurd. But a few of us held out and held on, and we stood alone in the Emperor's arena. We were gawked at even more by the numbed crowd as we awaited the next assault from out of the shadows, forgoing the hope of any kind of final recompense and judgment. And the thing that engineered it all looked on inscrutably. Billy Coombs spent most of his first 12 years of life dodging killing blows. His brother Ernie was beaten to death in front of him by a Catholic priest named Brother Murphy at the Kamloops Residential School. As a child, Billy was stretched on a rack and brutally sodomized, starved, shocked with electricity, and forced to run a gauntlet of club-wielding men of God. But one day, Billy learned to hit back, and he became the assaulter, and he ended up killing a man. Not surprisingly, Billy never talked about his past very much unless he was drunk. I used to float the co-op radio station rules and let Billy rant on the air while he was drunk, which let the truth be known over the airwaves but it happened at the cost of estranging me from a lot of nominally progressive white people who didn't like drunk Indians getting too close to them. The only other way Billy shared his woes was through his writing, which devoured spare napkins, scraps of paper, and envelopes that eventually found their way into my hands, along with a litany of horror gleaned from barely legible scrawl. 
Thus slowly did I begin to know what had happened to him. Billy became a silent partner to Harry Wilson, who was often as strung out as he was, and for good reason. For as children, both of them had been processed like hamburger meat through the same experimental programs run by United Church and military doctors, including Nazi emigres like Otto Rayner. Before I knew of their common grisly past, it was obvious that some subtle ether moved between Harry and Billy that required no words. In our meetings, they would both sit alone and silent, staring at the ground or occasionally and furtively at each other. The tripwire look in their eyes never left. I spent some time trying to decipher the pencil squills Billy had given me. The only words I could make out were green and lemonade. I went looking for Billy later that evening and found him surprisingly sober in a local coffee shop where the owner let him hang out without buying anything. He didn't seem to notice me until I spoke to him. Ah, shit, he said. I fucked up, right? Forget about it, I said, and I brought him a coffee. We sat for a while until I asked him, what does green mean, Bill? And lemonade. He stared at me for a while, his eyes filmy and distant. Dr. Green, he was the one, he and that fucking Brit. What the hell was her name? What kind of doctor, I asked. Billy's right forefinger shot to his head and started making turning motions. His eyes went even harder and seemed to fade out entirely. He moaned and then he said, bad children got the lemonade. We spent the next two hours navigating his memories. I was able to glean enough to get some of the picture. I wrote it up and sent it to a lawyer friend of mine who I met the next day in his office, well away from the probing eyes and ears along Hastings Street. Green was just one of his pseudonyms, said the lawyer. So his real name was Otto Rayner, a lieutenant colonel in the Waffen-SS and a protege of Josef Mengele. I knew he was in Canada during the 50s, but from Bill's account, he was still around as recently as the 80s. My friend sat with the usual flabby overconfidence of a lawyer behind a file of a pile of folders and books. Your buddy's account agrees with others, I've heard, he said. From Indians, I asked. Mostly, but some white street people, runaways. Otto Rayner and his Mounty buddies scooped up a lot of them. But of course, the residential schools gave the Nazis a captive supply of test subjects who were never traced. Another... Sorry. Years before that, a dozen of us had meandered on the sidewalk outside the West Coast headquarters of the United Church of Canada. Out of the window gaped the two men who had just arranged my secret firing from the church. But another unexpected arrival that day was a bedraggled native woman named Harriet Nahani. She spoke to the reporters about a little girl named Maisie Shaw, whom Harriet had seen kicked to her death by a United Church minister, Alfred Caldwell, 50 years before. It was the first time a residential school murder had made the headlines in Canada, and it opened the floodgates. Well, not accidentally, the next day my wife told me she was leaving me, which she did, thanks to United Church money. A month later, she stole my children from me with the help of a compliant divorce court order and a check from the United Church of Canada and its lawyer, John Jessamine. Later that spring, I was permanently expelled from the church and blacklisted by the same lawyer. And all of this avalanche of misery emanated from that lawyer who stared at me with unfeigned hatred through his office window the day we, I protested with Harriet. The ebbing of time causes even the most salient moment to recede from memory, but I've never let go of the crystal clarity that shot through me during that week. The fact that I was being subjected to a massive psychological assault that would not stop as long as I didn't. It sought either my mental capitulation or my death. And so later, I understood some of what had tried to experimentally remold the minds of Billy Coombs and Harold Wilson when they were so very young. I could tell soon after that that Billy Coombs wanted to talk about something. We had met that night outside the Vancouver Club that we were monitoring for child trafficking that had been reported. But after a while, I suggested we go and talk in an all-night coffee joint. Then he told me in hushed and guarded tones about what had happened on October 10, 1964 at the Catholic run Kamloops Indian School, where he had been imprisoned at age 11. I sat with his words in silence after it was done, which was unusual for me. I like to think in hindsight that it was because I knew the axe was poised over my friend, and one untoward movement would bring it down swiftly. But in fact, I was shocked, which I shouldn't have been. You sure it was Queen Elizabeth, I finally said to him. Billy nodded. 
He spoke about the incident a week later on my radio program, describing everything, including some of the names of the 10 Aboriginal children who disappeared forever when they were taken away by Canada's official head of state and her husband, Philip. After the interview, Billy seemed a lot lighter, and he didn't stop grinning. I've been wanting to tell that for a long time, he said. Well, Ricky will no doubt freak out, I replied with a smile. Billy smiled back at me, even as the assassins gathered. I was away when it happened, barely a month later, off in England, where Billy was scheduled to speak publicly about his years as a lab rat under Dr. Rayner's knife, and about what and who he had seen that day his ten schoolmates vanished forever in Kamloops. I learned about his death in an email. Two days before he was to get on a plane to London, Billy was ordered suddenly to report to the Catholic-run St. Paul's Hospital for unspecified tests. Mounties took him there forcibly. An eyewitness told me that two odd-looking men in business suits, who nobody in the hospital knew, ordered that Billy be injected with something and gurning away to a segregation room, where he quickly went into a coma. It turned out he'd been poisoned with arsenic, according to his nurse, Chloe Kirker. Billy's official cause of death was tubercular meningitis, although he bore none of the symptoms of TB. He was, in fact, on the mend. His drinking and drugging was in abeyance. But as Chloe Kirker, who saw his ending, observed later, poor people are often sent to St. Paul's Hospital to be killed. The last time I ever spoke to Billy Coombs, he gave me his most recent poem. You can read that one to people if you want to, Billy said calmly. I'm not scared of them anymore. The poem read, Babies cry to me for help. Get me food, please, Billy. I'm hungry. In the night, Jesse and I go and look for food in the orchard. A child cries, but I can't see who. Look, said Jesse. They're burying another one. Then I see Brother Murphy digging in the orchard. He kicks a bag in the hole and fills it in. Babies cry out to me still. Find us, Billy. Bring us home. We want to go home. Babies of the Indian Residential School, crimes of genocide cannot be healed or denied. I saw, I saw, I saw. William Coombs' funeral, like his murder, happened in the shadows. His few surviving family members refused to speak speak to me about his ending at St. Paul's Hospital. In the usual cowed manner of Indians who had a gun or something else shoved in their mouths, they never even told me what had happened to his body. Like the other four, Billy was with me one day and then simply gone. He and Bingo had been the bravest of the four, so naturally they were killed first. Ricky and Harry were street wraiths in comparison, blown about and set upon like they were armless and legless. Neither of them ever wanted to talk about their own nightmares, let alone what to do about them. But they liked the fellowship they'd shared with those of greater fiber. And being a white man, I was to them both the problem and the answer. As Ricky once explained his penchant for hanging around me, Kev, you talk like there's hope. Once Bingo and Billy were snuffed out, that all changed. Ricky Lavelli disappeared from the neighborhood for so long after Billy's death that I feared that he'd been whacked too. That was to wait a little while. And Harry melted into the pavement even more than normal and stopped speaking to me if he was with anyone else. The spreading fear didn't just grip them. The numbers of Aboriginal survivors who showed up at our protests and circles started falling away. Assassinations will do that, for they're meant to. Nevertheless, when your big adversary starts killing people, they're just showing their own desperation. Our protest continued, and our mosquito stinging of the colossal crime called church and state was beginning to make them react. Even as they killed us and denied everything, the guilty began making soothing sounds to the media about healing and reconciliation, about mending a sad past in the way Al Capone used to send flowers to his victims' relatives. And so as if to stand over and piss on my fallen friend's graves, the criminals tried stealing our thunder and putting their great killing to rest by saying it could all be fixed with some words and a bit of money. Their self-absolution worked, naturally, because the entire society and all the marionette native chiefs wanted it to work. But before it could succeed, the rest of us had to be put away for good, because we were a living refutation of their lie. memories. One night a year after Harry Wilson had died of undisclosed causes, I was speaking to a gathering of stricken people in Liverpool, England. After the meeting, one of them approached me. 
She was a woman my age, but seemingly older, a local resident who had hung on my every word as I spoke. She'd been visibly moved when I talked about my persecuted and imprisoned free-thinking ancestor, Peter Annett, who was Liverpool born and raised. She and I chatted over tea as people came and went, and she kept staring at me like one who draws the best water from the deep, deepest part of the well. Finally, the woman said to me quietly, Kevin, I've been trying to figure you out for years, and now I think I finally understand you. Oh, yeah? I said, feeling awkward. She nodded and, and answered, You were sent here to uproot and tear down the old so the new can grow. You're a system smasher. I smiled and said, Thank you. Thanks for seeing me. She took my hand and whispered tearfully, And your Indian friends, they saw it in you too. That's why they stood by you to the very end. At that moment, a flood of appreciation for my fallen friends filled me and a profound gratitude for who they really were and who they remain. All five of us had together stumbled over the secret that our lives are ultimately not our own. Another survivor put it this way, a man called Viktor Frankl, who survived Nazi death camps. He said, the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man or his psyche. For being human always points and is directed to someone or something greater than ourselves. The more a man forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or to others to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. Self-actualization is not attainable in itself, but it's possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Well, people... People not privy to the secret continually ask me why I don't worry about myself more, and they admonish me with the cure-all incantation, stay safe. The same kind of people used to relate to my four friends as broken objects to be fixed rather than a miracle in progress. Bingo and Harry and the others never spent any time fretting about their own personal healing. That's a white watchword, not one of their own. Like me, their days were directed towards who they had to help and what they had to overcome in a world trying to stomp them into nothing. Forgetting about ourselves, we ended up moving mountains. Narcissists never move anything. Smashing whole systems is the prerogative of those who are no longer the center of their own universe, but they revolve around a higher fixed point. And that's the lesson they all gave to me. And so... That's not all of the book. That's a summary of some of the most important parts of it. And I think that the way we move people first is through the heart. Because the mind is so fogged and so numbed down, I think we're all so cyclically numbed by everything we're seeing every day that it's hard to feel anymore, these basic feelings. It's easier for me because I knew them. I have in my own suffering this system. I just asked my daughters, all three of them, what they lost, what they had to go through even as they hide from the reality, like all Canadians. But the truth is that by moving the heart, we move mountains. But we have to have the freedom to act on what we know and not simply learn and do nothing. Rightful and righteous action is essential if we're to hold witness and give honor to the people I've been talking about today. You know... I'm just thinking, I don't know, a quote that comes to mind is one of my favorite books. It's by a guy called General Joshua Chamberlain. He was a survivor of the Battle of Gettysburg, where he led an, a, an amazing assault against a force six times larger than himself. And he wrote a lot after the war about the men he knew who gave themselves unswervingly. And he wrote, have they passed or will they ever pass? Am I left alone or still with them all? They will come together again under higher bidding and will know their place and name. This army will live on and live on so long as soul shall answer soul. Maybe that's the motto of today's story, although I wouldn't want to try to reduce it to any one thing. I hope it's moved you. I hope especially the voices you heard at the break moved you to become part of this campaign to stop the ongoing genocide. How can we tolerate Churches that threw babies into ovens and that are still trafficking children. If we do not shut down these churches as we are lawfully allowed to and compelled to, the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches, their crimes continue as we speak. 
the crimes of child killing and child trafficking continue. If you live alongside crime and do nothing about it, we're diminished morally, mentally, spiritually. To live alongside criminality and do nothing about it diminishes all of us. And so for your own sake, for the sake of the children who will die tomorrow if we don't act, write to us. Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com, MurderByDecree.com. And this coming month, and especially two dates I want to flag, April 15th, an anniversary of the, our first Holocaust Remembrance Day that started all these protests in Vancouver. April 15th, we're do, going to be doing a big teaching all over the world on that day about the history of this genocide and this ongoing nature and how it's led directly to the COVID corporatocracy police state we're in now. And, of course, June 12th to 14th is the anniversary of the, 50, the 25th anniversary of our first tribunal that documented these crimes. So follow all of that work, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates, republicofkanata.org under breaking news, and of course write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. It's been wonderful being with my friends again today and with all of you. We're going to end on another great song by Phil Oaks, a message for what we all need to be doing. This is Kevin Annett. Eagle Strong Voice will be back again live next week. Stay strong, stay clear, and carry it on. Thank you. in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone and I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone and you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here and I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone All the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't breathe the bracing air when I'm gone And I can't even worry about my cares when I'm gone Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be running from the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain when I'm gone Can't say who's to praise and who's to blame when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here Won't see the golden of the sun when I'm gone And the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone Can't be singing louder than the guns while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here All my days won't be dances of delight when I'm gone And the sands will be shifting from my sight when I'm gone Can't add my name into the fight while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be laughing at the lies when I'm gone And I can't question how or when or why when I'm gone Can't live proud enough to die when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here There's no place in this world where I'll belong When I'm gone And I won't know the right from the wrong When I'm gone 
And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it I guess I'll have to do it Guess I'll have to do it While I'm here